We confess that our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Let us lift up our hearts to the Lord to receive his words of greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Sermon this afternoon is taken from James chapter 1 and we'll read the verses now that lead up to our text. So we'll read from James 1, the first 11 verses. James 1, starting in at verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in a dispersion, greetings, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Sermon this afternoon deals with James 1, the verses 12 through 18. James 1, 12 through 18. And there God's word reads as follows. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. That's for our text. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, the sacraments have been given to us to strengthen us in our faith. To strengthen us because we have questions at times, we have doubts, We have weaknesses that we have to deal with in our lives. So sacraments are wonderful, rich gifts that need to be put to use. And that's the focus 
also of the text this afternoon, what we do with and how we work with the treasures that we have received in our Lord Jesus Christ. Because James, in his letter, also wants to encourage the believers to remain steadfast. That means that you're steady and you're not thrown off course too easily. And you notice right away in the beginning when he opens his letter in verse 2, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials, trials of various kinds. Consider, because when you go through trials, many things can come to your mind. And, and he says, this is what should come first and foremost. This is what you should think about when you deal with trials of all kinds. And notice, it's not if, but it's when. It's not a question, will I receive trials in my life? You can count on it. Everyone will. All of you. They're different, all kinds of them, it says. You may have had them in the past. You may be dealing with them right now. You may have to face them in the future. And as you deal with these trials and you think, how do I have to work this through in my mind? How do I have to deal with this in my life? Then the texts are, James says, you should think of joy because the Lord is shaping you. And he is using these trials to make you stronger, to help you grow in faith. Now, that's good to know, but how does that work? How can I now, in my trials, grow in faith? What do I need to do? How can I use what I have tasted, what I have seen this morning, this afternoon, to be steadfast when I meet trials? And that is what our text deals with, because it is a blessing over those who are steadfast under trial. So the theme for discernment this afternoon is how to remain steadfast under trial, and the three things I want to focus on, and that we have to consider God's crown, God's character, and God's plan. We have to consider God's crown, God's character, and God's plan. So the text begins with what you may call a beatitude. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And blessed here means that is the fullness of life. It doesn't mean that you're successful, that you have no problems. But blessed means that in your life you have this relation with God. You live from who He, what He gives to you. And that gives purpose to your life. That gives joy to your life. Blessed, when you remain steadfast, and how can you remain steadfast? Now, that's not a question when things go well, is it? It's especially when there comes hardship in your life, when there are difficulties in your life. And some difficulties may go away quickly again, others stay so long. How do you deal with that? Well, the first thing, he says, is that we should consider the crown of life that we will receive 
when we have stood the test, the crown of life. And the image here is related to what happens in the world of war and armies and sports. In those days when an army was successful, then the general or the emperor would be crowned and have a victory parade. And also the sports. When you won the competition, then you were crowned. And that is the the crown that is referred to here. Now, how does that work? And let's let's use that example of soldiers in a war or an army or and also of the athletes. Because there comes a point in your battle or in your competition what almost seems to become too much. Think of soldiers. What they need is indeed uh, steadfastness, not to give in, but be able to face the battle and go through it. But the battles keep on going. If you think, for example, in 1944, in the landing on the Normandy beaches, then you had the initial battle, and that was quite something, when finally they had a stronghold there on the beach. But then they had to keep on fighting, and it took so many more battles yet before the victory was there. And as these battles go on, then you need endurance But what gives these soldiers the strength and the adrenaline to keep on going? Because the victory is coming closer. And and as that victory comes closer, you continue to give it your all. Because you, you look forward to that moment when the crown of victory is given to you. The same in sports. In the beginning of the competition, you have lots of energy. But as more are dropping out or are defeated and, and, and there are less and less competitors involved, there's also more fatigue, more pain, more health concerns. But what, what makes these athletes go on? Because of the outcome, the crown, the cup, the medal, just that moment when they'll be crowned It's worth all that they had to go through. Now, that is the image that is used here as well. When you go through trials, and they're difficult, and they can be painful, and they can be all all kinds of them. It can be physical, can be emotional, can be relationships, can be at work, you name it. It can be temptations. What do you need to do? You have to look at the crown that is waiting And this is a very special crown. It's called the crown of life. It's not a medal. It's not a cup named after some official. It's a crown of life. That means this crown is life. Life in its fullness. Life in fellowship with God. Eternal life. That blessedness that no eye has seen, no ear has heard of, no heart of man even can conceive. That blessedness in which to praise God. That is the crown. That is prepared for us. Because not only is it a crown of life, it is also a crown of grace. Because it says, it is the crown that God has promised to those who love him. 
That is the promise of God that was signed and sealed in baptism. This is your promise. And we heard it this afternoon. You're mine, and I will guide you, and you will be able to stand without blemish before the throne of God to receive that crown of life that was promised. It's not my work. It's not I who put my own crown on. It's a crown I receive out of grace through the work of Jesus Christ, who is the life and through whom we receive life. I think here of what we read in Hebrews 12. Because the Lord Jesus also had to follow this, that he too had to look at the crown that was coming. It says in Hebrews 12, when he went to the cross, and the hardship that came with it, the pain, the agony, being forsaken by God, what gave him the strength to go on? He looked at what was beyond it, the glory, the crown of life that the Father would give to him. And that is now also what we need to do, following Christ, serving Christ. This crown, brothers and sisters, is the crown that God gives to you in Jesus Christ. It is given to those who walk by faith, not by works, by faith. Embracing Jesus Christ and all his benefits, his death, his resurrection, that also gives us certainty of this crown. If the crown were the result of my efforts, I would not be sure ever that I would receive it. But now I know it is given to me in and with my Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, when we go through trials, and these trials may seem to overwhelm us, and James is not belittling that, but he says, as you, as you go through these, these waves and these bellows that come over you, Psalm 42, then, then keep focus on what is coming, what you have and what is given you in Jesus Christ. When you struggle with pain, then know that one day, and it's coming closer, there will be no pain anymore. When you struggle with temptations, then know that one day, and it's coming soon, temptation will lose its power. When you feel lonely, remember the day is coming and not that far away when fellowship will be enjoyed in its fullness. Christ celebrating with us in the kingdom of his Father. That is the crown. What James is doing here is similar to what that well-known text in Romans 8 tells us. That the current troubles are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. And that we have in Christ already because we are more than conquerors in him. 
So when you deal with trials, focus on Christ and what we have in him. In the second place, we also need to consider God's character, says James. Not only God's crown, also God's character. That means who he is. Now we know that God is almighty, and especially when we come to deal with trials and things that happen in our lives, think of God's providence, God is almighty. But that exactly leads to questions, and sometimes they can be very difficult questions. The question, why? Why does God allow this? Why did he not prevent it? Why did he make me this way? Why doesn't he give what what I ask for and what I long for and what I pray for? Those are the questions we may have, don't we? Now, in this section, verses 13 and following, James is working with a word that has two meanings. And that's that word, trial and temptation. It's the same word. It can mean trial and then typically or test. And then it is something that God does and puts into your life. And he does that not to be mean, but to help you grow, to bring you closer to him. But then there are also temptations, and that is the work of the evil one, of the devil, who wants to then, wants to lure us away from God and, and the, the, Verbs used also here in this passage remind us of, of hunting or, or fishing where you, we have a lure and, and you, you hope the fish will bite and that way you will catch it. And so also the evil one has, he, he wants to lure us away from God's promises, from, from the crown that is promised to us. And, and, and the times it can even be that what is a test but God gives to us as a test. He will try to use that as a temptation. That was already the case in paradise. In paradise, God put a tree in the garden of which he said to Adam and Eve, you're not allowed to eat from it. And why did he do that? Because he wanted them to show that they love him to test them, to help them grow in obedience and, and in dedication and, and to, to acknowledge that he is their God. And then the devil comes and he says, have you ever considered that God is trying to hurt you, to be nasty to you, to control you? Why don't you be free? Make up your own decisions. Do what you want to do. And so the test became a temptation. And what did Adam and Eve do? They fell for it. And then, when that is a reality, a terrible reality, and God comes to the garden to confront mankind with its sin, what do Adam and Eve do? They follow the narrative of the evil one. It's not my fault. It's the other's fault. Adam says, oh, it's her fault. And Eve says, no, it's the serpent's fault. So they're always putting their fault outside of themselves and they look for causes elsewhere. And then ultimately, actually, they're blaming God. If you wouldn't have 
put us all in together, then this wouldn't have happened. And you see, brothers and sisters, that can easily happen. Oh, we may not blame God for evil, but in our questioning, we can come close to that. And so the text says, do not be deceived. And, and, and James uses that expression, not being deceived, a couple times in his letter because he realizes how, how easily that can happen, how we can deceive ourselves. He says, don't go that way. It's like the, the wisdom that God has revealed in, in the Bible. I think Psalm 1, there's two ways of wisdom. The way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And, and this is a way you should not go to blame God as if it is God's fault what has happened, these trials. And why not? Well, there are two reasons given here. Why not? Number one, it says, God cannot be tempted with evil. God cannot be tempted with evil. It's a beautiful statement. It's a very, very foundational statement. When you speak about who God is and what he does. That means he is so complete that evil has no way of getting a grip on him, a hold on, on him. He is 100% completely good. Perfectly good. There is with God not the slightest thought of evil. There's no hidden agenda to hurt. There's no inkling to something wrong. It's impossible because of who he is. He is good. And he cannot be tempted. The evil one has no grip And therefore, and that's the second, all he does is good. His works reflect his character. So if he himself can only do good things, also what he does is only good. That doesn't mean it's easy or painless, but it is good because it is his work. In the Belzi Confession, Article 13, when we explain what we believe about the providence of God, then also we use that there. This good God governs everything and explains it. But there we insert that word good to indicate that, yes, I may have difficulties with what happens in my life, but I have to realize that the one who governs all things, his character, he is good. Then where does evil come from? Well, that is explained here. And, and it says, you have to look at yourself. You have to look at yourself. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Don't blame God. The problem lies in us. Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And, and in itself, of course, there's in here a lot of instruction about giving in to temptation and giving in to desires. I'll leave that for now. 
There's the tenth commandment, you could say, you shall not covet. And, and the power of it. Or the petition, lead us not into temptation. But it is also mentioned here because of the contrast with who God is. With God there is no evil. So no evil thing comes from him. Whatever there is wrong, it comes from us. It's our own fault. Verse 16, don't be deceived. And then verse 17, what we receive from Father is only good. Every good gift, every perfect gift comes from Him. So whatever He does in your life, it is good. It is perfect. That is what we have to confess. Now we know that too in Jesus Christ. If you want to see the character of God, you have to look at Jesus Christ. Didn't the Lord see this? say this? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father am one. And, and is he not the manifestation of the Father, John 1? God is the source of all goodness. And notice how in verse 17, the Holy Spirit again reminds us of the character of God when it comes to these gifts. He says, Father can only give good gifts, perfect gifts. They come down from the Father of lights. That refers to Genesis 1, the beginning of creating. God spoke and there was light. So, these gifts come from the one who is the creator, who made everything, and therefore has everything in his hand, in his government. And it says, with him there is no variation or shadow due to change. That means with him... You don't have to worry that one day he says this and the next day he does something else. You can trust him. You trust him also when in our minds it doesn't make sense and in our thinking it's very difficult. Know who he is. He does not change. His love is steadfast. How often don't we sing that? His steadfast love. Well, that's what it means. There's no variation due to change or shadow due to change. God is steadfast. So how do we grow in steadfastness when trials are there? And when the questions come? And the answer is go to the character of God. Remind yourself because what James is doing here involves also thinking, considering, that's what he says in verse 2, consider it, that means something has to happen in your mind. And here we have to consider who God is. So easily we can blame him indeed, or, or question why he does it. And, and the Spirit says, go to who he is, to God's character. As he has revealed it in his word. As he has revealed it in, in the sign of, of baptism, of Lord's Supper, 
there you see his character, that he is the father of lights, that with him there's no variation. What this means is that when you study God's word, you ask yourself the question, what does this passage teach about the character of God? Because God's character is revealed in his word, in Jesus Christ. And so when you deal with your trials and you have your questions, and you feel overwhelmed by them, then open your Bible and read and ask, what is God's character? What do I learn in this passage of who God is? And that puts your trial in the right perspective. That puts it in the perspective of God's plan. And the third point, verse 18. God has a plan, brothers and sisters. After we fell into sin, he came with the promise. The promise that the seed of the woman would destroy the seed of the serpent. He comes with the promise of the renewal of all things. God's plan is that one day, all this misery, all this pain, all this grief, all this sickness, it will be gone. It will be gone. There will be a harvest of righteousness, of glory. Now, we are the first fruits of that harvest, it says. The first fruits means the beginning. That was the beginning of the harvest. In, in the Old Testament, you had to bring it to the Lord. It was the feast, the feast of first fruits. And so God, he realizes his plan, a perfect plan to make all things new. And he uses your life and you to begin that harvest. How? In that more and more you learn to live from and in and from to him. Well, if you think about that harvest of righteousness, that life in God's kingdom, it is a life of knowing God, loving God, praising God, relying on Him. Well, that begins. He, he, he is working. He is working. He's bringing you already, bringing you forth. He, he's, he's establishing in you already that new life more and more dedicated to him. And that is why in verse 2, James says, you have to think about it in, in these terms, count it joy. Because he, he's working in you already the beginning of that eternal joy. And why does he do that? It says in verse 18, of his own will. Of his own will. That's as far as we can go. It's as high as we can go. It's as deep as we can go. The sovereign good pleasure of God. That's why he does what he does. Perfect wisdom. He is sovereign of his own will. 
And then again, that is a will. It is not a will of a tyrant. It's a will of a father who loves you so much that he gave what was most dear to him to make you his own. His own will. And how does he do that? It says he brought us forth to be a kind of first fruits by the word of truth. By the word of truth. That is the means by which he helps you deal with these trials so that in you that beginning of that harvest becomes visible. That you're more and more dedicated to him. That's the word that contains the truth. That's the Bible. It's Christ himself. But in particular, that expression, the word of truth in the New Testament, points to the preaching of the gospel. Paul refers to that in Ephesians 1 verse 13, for example. The word of truth, that means as the truth through the preaching of the word came into your life, you were changed, you molded. So here too, God in his sovereign wisdom puts things into your path to shape you. And then he shapes you as he brings your word, his word to you every Sunday. That's why it is so important to attend, to put yourself under the preaching of the gospel. Because that is a means by which he is pleased to shape you, to bring you and to make you into the first fruit of the harvest that he has planned. And that's why also James, our Hebrews again, says, because the Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews also written to people who were in, in, in trials. And it says in Hebrews, do not neglect to meet together. As some of them apparently were doing. They were not coming together. Because we need that preaching in order to shape us. That's what God has ordained to be the means by which he does bring about his plan. And of course, added to the preaching are the sacraments, that you work with them, that you see them, that you partake in them. So there you have three elements. God's crown that is promised, that is prepared, God's character that we know, and God's plan that is being realized. That's what we have to work with. How can we grow in trials? We all meet trials. It is to consider what he is doing, who he is, and where he is leading us. What a gift. A gift that is so certain. It is as certain as the bread that you tasted and the wine that you drank. It is as certain as the water that came on Myla's head. Amen.